0: This is our God and Savior's teaching in Matthew 5 through through 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Good morning, Liberty Fairmount. I'm glad to worship with you today. Let me uh, just get situated up front here. We have uh, begun a new series for the summer, and it's a fascinating series. We're looking at uh, attributes character qualities of Jesus. And the reason I say that is because we're in Matthew 5. It's the, from the Sermon on the Mount. And a lot of people, if you've been in the church for a while, you'll see a lot of people have approached these attributes as a checklist to sort of check off. You know, you're just like, okay, these are the things that I need to be like, and so I'm going to check these off and make sure that I'm like that. And that's a real failure to understand what's going on in this passage because not only would jesus have us be like him in in listing these character traits but he'd also would have us know that he's our fulfillment of these things he's the embodiment of these things so that when we come to god through faith in what he's done these things are already true of us do you think that about yourself do you know that about yourself they're already true of you And what the Holy Spirit does throughout your lifetime in a progressive way will make them more and more true of you until you see your God face to face on the last day and every tear is wiped away and all things are made new. So we want to approach these with care because I don't want to leave you with the sense that this is somehow something that you on your own can fulfill. Nonetheless, he's talked about eight character traits that Christians are to be like. What are Christians to long to be like? What is it that you're to long to be like as a Christian? Have you ever wondered that? What should my life look like if I believe the gospel? Jesus tells us here, and it's, uh, he covers these eight things. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this idea. This idea. That blessing, blessing is Jesus' comfort for our morning. Blessing is Jesus' comfort for our morning. Now... Where does Jesus' comfort for our mourning happen? And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the fact that Jesus' comfort for our mourning happens inwardly, it happens outwardly, and it happens through our transformation. Jesus' comfort for our mourning happens inwardly, happens outwardly, and happens through our transformation. Let's just dive in. Why must Jesus' comfort happen inwardly? In verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who do what? who mourn, mourn. There's an inward sorrow. It means godly sorrow. Now, Jesus taught, blessed are those who mourn. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, gives us a description of what mourning is like. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, he writes about a godly sorrow that produces repentance leading to salvation. Godly sorrow that produces repentance leading to salvation. Now, simply put, it's this way. Sorrow that's not godly, sorrow that's not godly, mourning not as Jesus teaches here, doesn't produce that. It won't produce repentance that leads to salvation. Sorrow that is godly, mourning as Jesus teaching here, does produce repentance that leads to salvation. Mourning is godly sorrow that brings about change and life. It brings about change in life. So an example, what happens when somebody, uh, what happens through apology? What happens through apology when you're sorry for the consequence of the sin but not the sin itself, right? When you apologize and you're sorry just for the consequence and not the sin itself, you're basically sorry about the inconvenience of having to go through whatever you're going through. So let's say, you know, one of the things that you do is you use your words and somebody's upset by what you said and you've hurt them by what you said. And what you say is, I saw that elbow. (laughs) What you say is, I'm sorry you're so upset by what I said. I'm sorry you're so upset by what I said. Now, if that sounds good to you on the surface, hang on for a little bit of a ride. Because what that does is that apologizes for the person being upset. You've said nothing about what you've actually said. You've apologized for the inconvenience the person's upsetness poses to you and that you have to deal with it. There's no apology at all, all right? So there's, there's a, that's not a godly sorrow to do that. An example of sorrow that's godly is to be sorry for the sin itself, not just the consequences. And so what we could do there, we could say it like this. Let's say that your words, you've said, used words and they've hurt somebody, and you could say it this way. I'll break it down after I say it. I'm sorry for the way that I use my words to cause you pain. What I said was wrong Because the Bible teaches that my words should be for building up and they should fit the occasion. They should give grace to those who hear. And my words didn't do that for you. And I'm going to consider and pray about what the Bible has to say about my words so that if we disagree in the future, the Lord through his grace working in me will help me to use my words in a way that won't cause you pain again. Will you please forgive me? You hear the difference? You hear the difference of being sorry for the sin, than just for the consequences of the sin. Uh, so I told you I would break it down just quickly, uh, so you can have it in your mind. We do this with our kids, and we try to remember ourselves to do it as husband and wife in our home. And I, I advise you to try it too. And the idea is this: Okay, think about why what you did was wrong. That it was wrong. Admit that it was wrong talk about why it was wrong. Show some understanding. Show some facility with the fact that you messed up here. Own your sin. Talk about what you can do differently in the future. Consider how you can live in a different way going forward, right? And then ask for forgiveness. If you've ever had somebody apologize to you, and they haven't done this, and they have just said, I'm sorry, and you say, okay, I forgive you, but they haven't thought through that, chances are that they actually aren't apologizing for the thing that you think they need to apologize for, and vice versa, okay? So, sorry for the consequences of the sin, not the sin itself. If that illustrates our sin with other people, if those examples illustrate our sin with other people, how much more so in our approach to God when we sin, when we approach God being sorry for the ramifications, the natural outcome, the problems that our sin has caused, rather than the sin itself, the fact that it ruptures our relationship with him, that it threatens peace that he brings and offers through the gospel, that we don't get to know him more deeply and better and more richly because we're not owning up to the fact that we need him. When Jesus teaches blessed are those who mourn, he means those who have a godly sorrow. That is a sorrow for the sin itself, not just for the consequences. So what does he want from you? What does he want from you? He wants you to be sorry for your sin in itself, not just for the consequences. In any area of your life, known or unknown, you know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism was a tool that the church used for ages to to train their kids up and new believers up in the faith. And there's a question in it. It says, what is sin? And this is a paraphrase, but it said basically this. Sin is disobeying and not conforming to God's law in any way. So it's not just doing, disobeying it, but it's also not living up to. And Jesus gives us a standard here that's beyond what we can live up to, which is why we need him. We'll get to that. In verse 4, Jesus teaches that blessing comes through this type of mourning. This type of mourning. So examine not just what you do, but why you do it you begin to see with the Holy Spirit's guidance that the reason you sin in particular, and listen to me now, the reason that you sin in particular is that you aren't mourning your sin, but you're celebrating it and holding on to it as something you think you need. That's why Jesus' comfort for us must happen inwardly. We're worse off than we thought. But in that, we also have to look at how Jesus comfort mourn, uh, comforts us when mourning happen, happens inwardly. How does he do it? How does he comfort us? One of the things uh, that Paul mentions is that God, godly sorrow has no regret. In Paul's description of what mourning means in 2 Corinthians 7.10, he writes that godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, but it also produces repentance that leads to no regret. What is repentance that leads to no regret? Sorrow that is not godly is full of regret. Paul goes on to say that worldly grief leads to death. Worldly grief leads to death. By way of contrast, godly sorrow has no regret and leads to life. Mourning is not just repentance that leads to life, but also has no regret about what sin you leave behind. What sin you leave behind. Mourning that can't be consoled in other words, worldly grief that leads to death is what happens when you aren't mourning your sin but celebrating it, holding on to it as something you think you need. So some examples. Worldly grief that leads to death. Okay? Let's say that you care very much about your performance. You care very much about your performance. And when you're filled with anxiety and thinking, if I slip up, if I make the wrong move here, I could lose everything. Or let's, Let's say you're concerned about losing respect, people's respect for you. And you're filled with pride and anger. And you're thinking, hey, I'm not getting what I deserve. People are not treating me right. Who do they think they are? Or let's say that you're longing for acceptance, but then you're filled with guilt and thinking, hey, I've blown it. My problems mean he's abandoned me. Or let's say that you're really longing for excitement. And things to be fun. And when you're filled with boredom and lethargy, you're thinking, sure, I'm a Christian. Sure, I have good things. So what? If you keep along those tracks, the worldly sorrow that you experience will lead to your undoing. You won't find health in that. However, let's contrast it with mourning that can be consoled. Examples of godly sorrow that lead to life. What happens when you're sorry for your sin and not just the consequences So some examples. Again, performance. When you're tempted to anxiety, you can console yourself with the gospel. You can think and pray instead, look, I know, Lord, that all the things that I have are really gifts of grace. All of the things that I have are really gifts of grace. They aren't here because of my performance, but because of God's generosity. He loves me enough to lose his only son for me. Surely he will continue to give me what I need. Or let's consider respect. When you're tempted to pride and anger because you don't think you're getting the respect that you deserve, you can humble yourself with the gospel. You can think and pray like this. You can say, all things, Lord, I've really been given are gifts of grace. I've never gotten what I deserve. I've never gotten what I deserved. If I did, if you gave me what I deserve, I'd be dead. I'd be dead because you would judge me but you don't give me what I deserve. You give me Jesus instead. Or think about acceptance. When you're tempted to guilt, you can be confident in the gospel. You can be confident. You can think and pray instead. All the things that I have are a result of God's grace. I never earned them to begin with, so I couldn't have unearned them. This was my heart long ago, this kind of wanting to earn these things, wanting to earn this acceptance. I didn't see it, but he did. And he's still with me now, even in that yearning, and he wants to remake me. Or excitement and wanting fun. When you're tempted to boredom and lethargy, be amazed. Be in wonder at the gospel. Think and pray instead. All things I have, every one of them, is a gift of grace. The very fact that I'm a Christian is a miracle. Who would have thunk? Here I am, by the grace of God. So when Jesus teaches blessed are those who mourn, he means those who have a godly sorrow with no regrets about what you've turned from or who you've turned to in place of that. No regrets. The Lord longs that you would have no regret about turning your back on your sin itself. That you would have no regrets for that. He longs for that in you. And he longs for you to take the things that you celebrate and hold most dear and look at the areas that you're tempted to pay attention to those things. And Jesus says that blessing only comes through the type of mourning that has no regret about leaving those things behind. So, what do you do? I'd ask you to daily and prayerfully consider the things that, if they were taken from you, would undo you with regret. If they're threatened in you, if you have a danger of losing them, that they threaten you with regret, I would say look at those things, see them for what they are. The thing about the things that we long for that are good things that we've turned into ultimate things is that we can't see them any longer for what they are. But it's like taking a piece of bait and showing you the bait and saying, hey, this bait looks good. Don't you want to bite of this bait? And all the while, the hook is hidden. And you bite into that bait and you're hooked. That's the way it is with not seeing our sin for what it is. You've got to see it for what it is. You've got to see how your longing for those things is a failure to see what God has done for you in the gospel. Pride is done away with. He had to die for you. But fear is done away with too. He did die for you. He stood in for you. He loves you that much. So Jesus' comfort for our mourning happens inwardly. It's an inward comfort consoling our godly sorrow for the sin itself and with no regrets in leaving our sin go. But not only does Jesus comfort our inward mourning, he also, and this brings us to our second point, he comforts our outward mourning. What does he mean by that? What do we mean by that? Why must Jesus comfort our mourning that happens outwardly? Look, godly sorrow is focused outwardly in redemptive history. Godly sorrow is focused outwardly in redemptive history. Verse 4 says, Blessed are those, are those, plural, who mourn. The gospel goes out. We heard that from Phil when he was talking about what the Lord is doing amidst his people in southern New Jersey. The gospel has always gone out. Jesus, when he steps into his hometown of Nazareth, right, and he goes to the synagogue there and they ask him to preach, uh, from the from the scripture, he's handed a roll of Isaiah 61, and he opens up and he reads it, and he says, "Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing," pointing to himself. Unbelievable! And what does Isaiah 61? The Messiah comes to comfort those plural who mourn. Or in Luke 25, Simeon 2:25, uh, Simeon is longing for the consolation of Israel. He's longing for the consolation of Israel. Console, right? of an entire nation. Or John says those who are sitting in darkness, those who are sitting in darkness have seen a great light. Or Paul in Acts 15. He says, you know, I've been designated by God and by you to go and give the good news to the Gentiles to preach the good news of Jesus. Why do we need good news? Because the gospel goes out. The consolation goes out. Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples from people from every nation because the gospel goes out. The good news has to go out. Now, one of the interesting things that I came across as I was doing my preparation and my study and praying through this was that Matthew, as a as a writer, for his letter here, his gospel letter, has has different attributes of his letters that make it distinct. Has different attributes of his letter that make it distinct. And one of those attributes is inversion. Listen to this note that uh, was found in one of the scholars that I read. Inversion is prevalent in this gospel, as it is in the Bible's view of life more generally. Put quite simply, from God's perspective, the world has the wrong expectations and values, especially with its stress on power and materialism. Old Testament examples of such inversion include the choosing of Saul and David over more likely candidates for the throne. In the gospels, Christ is born in a manger instead of a palace. The Messiah turns out to be the prince of peace instead of a conquering warrior king. An emphasis is placed on the value of the meek and the poor as well as women and children. Further examples of ironic inversion include the choice of the disciples, most of whom were quite ordinary men, the difficulty for the rich to even enter the kingdom of heaven, and the concept that many are the first, who are the first will be last and the last first. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Inversion is also reflected in the radical ethics, guess where? Right where we're reading from in the Sermon on the Mount, where we are told, rather than we must love our enemies, that it's virtuous to turn the other cheek when struck, and that we should not resist evil when provoked for the sake of the soul. So the inversion of our verse, verse 4, where is it? The inversion of our verse is that blessed are those who mourn, is that mourning isn't just inward, it's also outward. You are mourning for those around you, You are mourning for those in your life who need to be also sorry for their sin and not just the consequences. For those around you who need to leave their sin behind them without regret. The Bible teaches the golden rule that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Love our neighbors! I'm reminded of a a Rebecca Pippert quote in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker. And she wrote something to this effect, the more the father has love of his son. Speaking of any father, the more that a father has love of his son, the more the father hates in his son, the liar and the drunk and the cheat. And so it's impossible to do the golden rule to love our neighbors ourselves and not be concerned, not have our concern, not have our mourning focused outward on those around us. If, if you need to mourn for the sin and not the consequence in your own life, how much more people, how much more the people around you in your life? Are you praying in that way? Not only that, mourning for others, but identifying with them in their need. What this enables you to do, what Jesus enables you to do here, is put up a periscope. And somebody's sin, the wave of somebody's sin is about to come crashing down on you. You're going to feel its effect. And Jesus enables you to put up a periscope and look over that wave and see onto the other side of it the need that they have to turn from the sin itself and to have no regret in leaving it behind. Are you able to love your enemies like that? Are you able to identify with their sin even when they harm you? Are you able to hope for the best and the potential that only the gospel can bring out in them? Jesus' comfort for our inward mourning and for ourselves must also happen for outward mourning for others. He must comfort us there too. God requires from us a godly sorrow. A godly sorrow, not just for ourselves, but for others. A godly sorrow for the sin in and of itself found in others. Not just for the sorrow of the consequent of the sin that happens through others or through you. Wherever you come into contact with someone who doesn't show godly sorrow for their sin itself or doesn't show godly sorrow with no regret is where you need this, where you need this in your life. The mourning of God in redemptive history is by nature directed outward, and so your mourning must be directed outwards too. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What I want you to do is this. Think about this assignment. I have, and uh, I'm prepared to do it along with you. I want you to keep track of each time somebody ticks you off this week. I want you to make a note of it. Were you able to see any kind of need in them to be included among those who leave their sin behind without regret and turn from it? Were you able to identify with their need behind the wave of their sin coming at you? Were you able to put up the periscope to look to the other side of the pain they caused you? Were you able to mourn outwardly for them rather than just mourning for the consequences of their sin against you? Keep a log of those times and pray for progress. Progress. You're going to find that those kinds of standards are things that you will be crushed under if you're not approaching them with the freedom that Jesus gives you. Pray for progress because His truth is liberating and liberates you in a way that you can go after that. All right. Uh, and remember that Jesus is your comfort. It's not the end of their hostility towards you that's your comfort, Jesus is your comfort. All right? But that's why Jesus must comfort our outward mourning for others. But we also must see how he comforts our outward mourning for others. How must Jesus do it? Verse 4, he says, for they shall be. They shall be comforted. He comforts with a promise. Jesus comforts us with a promise. Shall be. Because of God's parental longing to gather, to care, to long for, to protect. You know, in Matthew 23, Jesus, speaking from the perspective of God, very interesting place, Matthew 23, 37. Jesus, speaking from the perspective of God, uh, says uh, that he can fulfill his promise because he longs to gather, to care for, to protect. He says this, he says, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. We see in Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven that the people of Jerusalem were not willing to relate to God through his parental longing to gather them. Not willing to relate to God through his parental longing to gather them, to care for them, to protect them. And yet, Jesus says that his desire to gather them was still there. It was still there. That's why the morning of the godly sorrow with no regret is so important. When that happens, it affects our willingness to be gathered. It changes the nature of who we are. When our unwillingness is dealt with in the gospel, it leaves nothing else but the longing of God for us, and his promise is comfort. And who can stop the longing of God to comfort his people? Who can stop it? Jesus himself said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Paul referred to this and he said, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love that's in Christ Jesus. Jesus comforts our inward mourning, but he comforts our outward mourning for others through a promise. Godly sorrow for the sin itself and no regret about leaving behind, Jesus promises comfort. They shall be comforted. He promises to do that for us. I'm going to borrow from Jonathan Edwards. There's a famous quote that, that everybody reads and knows about from his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. And it's an it's a interesting quote because it's powerful, but I'm going to borrow it and, and use it here in another context. And it's simply this. Like a spider web cannot stop a falling rock, so nothing can stop God's longing for and comfort for us in the work of Jesus Christ. Will you let that truth penetrate your heart? Will you let that truth penetrate who you are? How does Jesus comfort us in our longing for others? He comforts us with a promise. When our unwillingness to be gathered by God is dealt with through mourning, Jesus' promise is that comfort is coming. God desires in us that our unwillingness be gathered, our unwillingness to be gathered be dealt with through his promise that you shall be comforted not through your own strength, but his to make all things new. That wherever in your life that you're unwilling to have God gather you, that's where you need this. Verse 4, the promise of comfort is linked to the necessity of godly sorrow for not only yourself, but for others. So examine your own willingness to be gathered by God in his longing for you. Are you willing to be gathered? Ask God to deal with the unwillingness that's there. And see the willingness of Jesus on your behalf. Examine the unwillingness of others to be gathered and pray for God to deal with the unwillingness that's there. And see the willingness of Jesus on their behalf. All right. Jesus' comfort for our outward mourning is through his promise that those who have their unwillingness to be gathered by God dealt with are comforted by Jesus' promise of comfort. Verse 4, they shall be comforted, but how can our unwillingness be gathered by God and dealt with? How could our unwillingness to be gathered by God be dealt with? We can't do it, which is why we come to a checklist like this of character traits that Jesus says that we need, and, and we're, fine, we're found wanting. There's no way that we can live up to this. That brings us to our last point. Jesus' comfort for our mourning happens through our transformation, through our transformation, why must Jesus' comfort happen through our transformation? Verse 4, their mourning shall be comforted. There's progress. There's transformation from mourning to comfort. That's where it happens. There's actual prog- progression in what happens for you. Um, because the penalty of our sin and its power over us is too much to handle on our own, in other words, our unwillingness to be gathered by God, only Jesus can cancel sin's penalty and power in our lives. Only he can do it. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21, Therefore we are ambassadors in Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's answer to our unwillingness to be gathered by him or reconciled to him is Jesus being made sin. Though he knew no sin, so that we could be comforted in our godly sorrow for the sin itself and without regret, both inwardly and outwardly. God deals, God deals with our unwillingness to be gathered by him by becoming our unwillingness. Do you hear that? By becoming our unwillingness, so that in him our unwillingness is transformed into willingness. And his record is our willingness. His willingness is given to us. It's the same It's the great exchange of the gospel, and it's the same in every great story. You know, uh, the children's story, um, the Narnia Chronicles, Aslan gives himself and gives his own life so that Edmund's rescued from certain death, right? Calvin summarized this great exchange in his introduction to Geneva Study Bible, an annotated Bible that he put together for his people so they could learn God's word and promises better. And at the very outset, the way he introduces this tool to help build his people in their faith is the great exchange. And he says it like this, And even any good that could be thought or desired is found in this Jesus Christ alone. Now listen for the great exchange as he enumerates for his people the way that they can think about it, take it home with them, meditate on it, chew on it, let it melt in their mouth in a savory kind of way. And he writes, for Jesus humbled himself to exalt us. He made himself a slave to set us free. He became poor to enrich us. He was sold to redeem us, captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. He was made malediction for our benediction oblation of sins for our justice. He was disfigured to refigure us. He died for our life in such a manner that by him harshness is softened, wrath appeased, darkness enlightened, iniquity justified, weakness is made strength, affliction is consoled, sin is impeached, despite is despised, dread is emboldened, debt is acquitted, labor is lightened, Sorrow turned to joy. Misfortune into fortune. Difficulty is made easy. Disorder made ordered. Division united. Rebellion subjected. Threat is threatened. Ambushes are driven out. Assaults assailed. Striving is overpowered. Combat is combated. War is warred. Vengeance is avenged. Torment, tormented. Damnation, damned. Abyss is thrown into the abyss. Hell is hell. Death is dead. Mortality, immortality. In short, mercy has swallowed up all misery and goodness, all wretchedness. The great exchange. God himself deals with our unwillingness to be gathered by him through the great exchange of the gospel. Jesus became our sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. You need to bring nothing but your need to the table. In your godly sorrow, realize the extent of your need, but also, in Jesus' promise, realize the vastness of your hope. You can't have one without the other. You need to remember that God's blessing of comfort to you can only happen through the exchange of the gospel. Acknowledge your need for the great exchange. Wherever in your life that you have assumed that you don't need it, what's your plan? What's your plan of rooting yourself down into the great exchange and making use of it and living out of it? Do you have one? Have you thought about it? Do you know where you need the great exchange most? Do the others in your life know this? Because the penalty of our sins and its power over us is too much to handle on our own, our unwillingness to be gathered by God, only Jesus can cancel sin's penalty and power in our lives. Only by letting God deal with your need through Jesus' work on your behalf will you be free to mourn with a godly sorrow, without regret, Only when you see Jesus, whose godly joy was turned to sorrow on your behalf. For the sake of the joy set before him endured the cross, will let you be free enough to mourn as Jesus commands here. That's why Jesus' comfort has to happen through our transformation. And lastly, and quickly, we need to look at when it happens. And quite simply, it's this. It's holistic. It fits into your entire life. It fits into the way that you think. It fits into the way that you feel. It fits in and shapes the way that you live your life and the way that you do your things that you do day to day. It happens when you think about and experience and live out of your new relationship to sin and others into the future. Verse four, your new relationship to sin, God deals with your sin in Jesus because he says, blessed are those who mourn. Right? We've talked about that. And God deals with your relationship to others. God gives you a new relationship to others, one of godly sorrow and longing. Those who mourn, they shall be satisfied. Your attention should also be there. Your new relationship with the future, Jesus promises to secure your future. They shall be comforted, shall be comforted. Your future is secure. Paul writes that the truth of the gospel is to guide everything about us and how we live. In Galatians, he writes in a, in a dispute that had uh, started up, between church members, he writes this. He says, "I saw that their contact was not in step. I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel." And so he called them out because what they were living is different from what the gospel says and requires of them. Jesus' comfort happens when you think about the gospel, when you experience the gospel, when you live out of the gospel. It's holistic, in line with the truth of the gospel of God think about it this way. Comfort through thinking about the gospel. Uh, I have a friend who was really struggling, uh, really struggling with being depressed and was near suicidal. And there were other means, and hear me clearly, there are other means. You, you have to be prepared to call an emergency number. You have to be prepared to get a, an entire layer of help. But one of the things that God happened to use in this moment was that he called me. And he was near suicidal. And his wife got on the phone first and said, I don't know how to reason with him. Would you please talk to him? He's not living in line with what he thinks about God to be true. And so we thought about it. And his line of reasoning and his despair was, I, I can't overcome this. I don't have what I need to overcome the things that I'm feeling. I don't have it. And I pointed him to what Peter writes who says, in Jesus, you've been given everything you need for life and for godliness. Everything that you need. And I told him, I said, think it out. You know that to be true. You resonate with that verse. You know God's word has authority over you. You want to submit to that. And you're not submitting to it here? What are you doing? Think it through. And he he backed down from where he was at and he went and he got further help. And it was an important moment for him because he thought through the gospel. Comfort comes through thinking about it, but it also comes through experiencing of it. You know, you can know lots of facts about love, but until you experience love, you don't know love. There's a great scene in in a movie with Robin Williams and Matt Damon where Matt Damon's character is really, he's bright, he's erudite, he's able to talk about anything from memory. He's able to, you know, he's just brilliant, brilliant, brilliant character. And yet, because of the abuse that he's received in his life, he's stayed back from relationship. And so his therapist in the movie, Robin Williams' character, asked him if he's ever been in love. And he said, oh, I know about love. And he would quote sonnets and, you know, talk about these other things that he knew about love. And his counselor challenged him. And he talked about the first time that he saw his wife and how much love began to overtake him and how that love stayed through all the years, even through the small little peccadillos that happen in our character that we notice of each other behind closed doors that we would only notice of our spouse that no one else can see. And through all of those, he continued to love her. And he described from experience what love was like. And Matt Damon's character was just left hanging. Have you experienced the effects on love, on what you think, on how you order your time, on your heart rate, on your breathing, on your emotions. If you haven't, you haven't known love. If you haven't known Jesus like that, if you haven't experienced him like that, you haven't known his love. You know about it, but you don't know it. So you've got to think about it, but you've got to encounter it. And then The last thing is that you've got to live out of the gospel. You know, growing to love someone like the way that we've been talking happens through practice. It happens through practice. One of the things that pastors get to do that most of you don't get to do is that uh, we get to love other people daily, whether we want to or not. So in your situation, in your life, there are people that you'll encounter that will be hard to love, and you can actually just kind of stay back and withdraw from him. But as a pastor, because of the love of Jesus, and I would argue for you too, because of the love of Jesus, we'll get to that, you've got to stay and you've got to love. And you know that when you practically sit with somebody that's hard to love, and you do it again and again and again, that through the actual practice of loving them, your heart grows to love them. And it's the same thing with the gospel. The more that you live out of line live in line with the truth of the gospel, the more that you do it, even when you don't feel like it, the more that your heart grows to him, the more it comes in line with the, the rigor of your thought about the gospel, your emotions about the gospel. You've got to know it, you've got to experience, it, you've got to practice it. Jesus comforts you in your transformation in all aspects of who you are and what you do. Friends, I would ask you to surrender your spiritual transformation to Jesus' able care. Only his love can transform you so that you can be blessed in His comfort. He wants that of you in your thoughts, in your emotions, in how you live day to day. Blessing of the comfort comes through the transformation of the gospel, from mourning to being comforted. Your lack of comfort is due to your functional rejection of how Jesus deals with your need in the gospel. It's only by seeing him for you that you can experience the transformation that will bring you comfort. So as you go out today... Mourn inwardly, mourn outwardly, and mourn through your transformation with Jesus. And He, the one who lost all comfort on the cross for you so that you could be comforted, will comfort you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you've given your only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to stand in for us. And indeed, you want that news to affect not just the way that we think. the way that we feel, the way that we live our lives day to day. You want us to mourn inwardly, outwardly, and through the transformation of the gospel. And yet, there's no way that we can do this just by trying hard. We need you, Lord. We need your record on our behalf. And the good news of the gospel is that we have it. You've given it to us freely through your grace, and you've promised to complete the work that you've begun in us. And so, we take your promise. We take your promise that we shall be comforted and we live in line with the truth of that, the truth of your faithfulness. Be with us now as we continue in our worship and our praise and the joy of what we've been given in you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.